Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years' experience of working with young people, and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. In this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Tina Mystery, also known as the Brown Psychologist. She's a passionate speaker, trainer, writer, podcaster and mentor around South Asian mental health. Teenage years is the time for experimentation. During teenage years, we are going to be almost seduced into trying different things that deviate from what our core values are. As parents, we've got to ride that, but always to give the child opportunities to come back home. Dr. Mystery will be explaining how caring what others think is a vital step in our children's developmental journey to greater self-awareness and self-confidence. To mark World Mental Health Day, please welcome the brilliant Dr. Tina Mystery. Dr. Mystery, thank you so much for coming onto our podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. So as someone who works in mental health, what does Mental Health Day mean to you? It's really important, isn't it, to acknowledge that the whole world needs to be talking about something that we all experience. It's not just something that people in the West experience or people in certain countries experience. This is a universal experience and it's about bringing together our experiences and sharing them and acknowledging them. Part of the reason you're here today is to talk about our our children have this reflex to worry about what other people think. And our reflex as parents is, you know, don't care what other people think, but talk us through the evolutionary context of why it is that we should be caring about what other people think. It's a very natural response to care about what people think. We all care about what others think about us. You know, we've done it for, for years and years and years. And yet we're trying to shut down that very natural emotion or that response. So what we're saying is that we've got to first acknowledge that this desire exists. And secondly, we need to understand why it exists. So if we go back to the days of cavemen and tribalism, it was so important for our survival to fit in. It was our way to know that we belonged somewhere. So if you were of a tribe that you all kind of uh, wore certain colors, that was important for your survival. And if you weren't wearing particular colors, you'd be shunned, you'd be kicked out and you'd be left to be fed to the wolves. So actually belonging is hugely important for us as our survival. And when we start to actually care about what other people think, it usually kicks in at the time where we're figuring out who we are, especially the teenagers. And maybe now what I'm noticing is it happens a little bit younger now as well, becoming socially aware, you know, the rise of social media, the rise of, of really trying to understand who we are in this world and how we fit in. It's important to understand that this is a universal experience and that us as parents, we'd been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. 
it's interesting that you mentioned the parental point of view there, because obviously adults are calmer, wiser, you know, perhaps less likely to feel the need to adapt to fit in. So what is going on in a child or a, a teenage brain to make children behave differently in this way? So especially the teenage brain, as we know, is going through a huge change. Um, both in terms of its wiring and firing, but also its sort of development in terms of trying to figure out how do I belong in this particular social setting? So there's a couple of things that are happening. First of all, who am I? And then the second question that often crops up is, how do I fit amongst my peers? You know, what, what is my position? bit like kind of when hens are figuring out the pecking order. It's a bit similar to that. And that usually does happen during the teenage years. So what's my function in society? So as we start to figure out who we are, we're experimenting, we're trying different things, we're trying to work out whether we are socially acceptable or not. And most of the time, in order to survive, because it is often a survival mechanism that kicks in, if we think about the teenage years, it is about cliques. It's about being part of the right sort of um, group. You know, we want to belong. We want to be with the cool kids. So we have to then adapt in order to fit in and belong. And this is where we start to see shifts in our children's behaviors. You know, that we might be experimenting with different clothes, makeup, different behaviors, different interests. And if we're not doing the things that are, are trying to keep up with others, we will soon be sort of picked out or picked upon. And that for the child's self-esteem is hugely detrimental. That's interesting though, because, you know, you mentioned social media and if you go on any kind of social media, you are bombarded with kind of motivational quotes. And so many of them are about being individual, you know, don't change so that people will like you, be yourself, the right people will love you. And like many other parents and carers, I want to encourage my daughters to be themselves and to be brave enough to stand out. But does that mean that I'm doing the wrong thing? It's not necessarily the wrong thing. I think that it's a message that usually filters at a particular age when maybe we've really understood who we truly are. And I think that during the teenage years, we haven't really quite figured that out. And sadly, there is just, you know, teenage years is the time for experimentation. It's the time where you color your hair and you might try a piercing or you might do something that isn't essentially to the core of who you are. That is because we're just testing out the water. We're testing out what works for us, what doesn't work for us. And it's only when we get into our sort of late, mid to late 20s that we truly start to understand who we are. And that's when those quotes really start to make sense. And, you know, we see all these memes, don't we, of um, what would you say to your younger version of yourself? And it is the same old thing, isn't it? Don't try too hard. Just be yourself. And sadly, that doesn't quite work at the time. Sadly, we are just trying so hard to fit in. It is really about holding space for that discomfort because that is what we are going through. We're going through a period of transition and transitions are messy. We've got to accept that. It's interesting that you say mid to late 20s. I mean, does that mean that we are still in that developmental phase for much longer than we realize? Yeah, the brain doesn't fully mature until the late 20s, 30s. In that case, from a parental point of view, is it just a case of that agonizing wait for your child to find their tribe where they can kind of fit in? 
Yes, but it's also really important that as a parent, we ground and give our children core values. And that's where essentially those come from, right? That as a parent, we can give our children knowledge and wisdom based on what we've learned. So I use the term intergenerational wisdom. And that comes from our ancestors, my grandmother, my great grandmother, my grandparents. I I hear the stories about what they have been through and what they've learned. And those nuggets passed down. And it is really about staying authentic to your core values, that what is it that makes you, you as an individual, but also based on your familial, you know, family line of experiences, you know, what are the conversations around money and money mindset? What are the things that we believe in? You know, is it that we come from a family of working hard and that ethic is is one of our core values, that family is important. But I think that as a parent, we can only guide and Mm. provide some ideas around our own core values, which we hope that for our children, that they will also um, adopt as well. It's interesting that you talk about these kind of generational core values. Um, The Children's Society recently published their 10th Good Childhood Report. And, you know, it laments the significant decline in children's happiness over the past decade. I mean, do you think that those generational core values are still relevant to children who are living in a completely different world to the one in which we grew up? You know, if you look at how the world has changed, yes, it has. It changes every 10, 20 years. I mean, I grew up in the 80s and the world was very different. We didn't have social media. Yeah. So it is really about adapting. But essentially, core values don't necessarily... um change based on kind of society. They're based on sort of who we should be as humans. A bit like the Ten Commandments, you know, it's a bit like this ideas of your philosophy of life. Like what is it that's important? One of my core values is family's important. And that's come from the fact that my mom has always been a family oriented person. I deviated away from that as a teenager because I was like, oh, it's my friends, my friends are my world. But I was still constantly reminded during my teenage years that family was important. And that was down to my mom constantly kind of bringing me back to, you know, spending time with family. And I think that, you know, during teenage years, it is difficult because we are going to be almost seduced into trying different things that deviate from what our core values are. But it is about holding space for as parents, we've got to ride that tension, got to ride that space, but always to kind of constantly give the child opportunities to come back home. Yes, absolutely. So it's really interesting that you talk about discomfort and difficulty that our kids feel because for parents, it also can feel really deeply uncomfortable when you see your child feeling unhappy. So give us some advice about, you know, how to deal with it when our children are upset by what others think or say, you know, how do we manage that parental reflex to protect and stick up for our kids without really getting ourselves into trouble. (laughs) It's so easily done, isn't it? Because, you know, that's our drive, isn't it? Our kind of what I call the mama bear instinct that you mess with my kid, I'll mess with you, you know? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's not going to help them in the long run. We've got to help our children sit with discomfort. We've got to help them to learn to tolerate difficult emotions. Because guess what? When you're in the big bad world, not everybody is going to like you. Not everybody is going to um, want you to be in their circle. And as adults, we we learn that, you know, that's just something that we've we've just taken away. So the things that parents can do is firstly, almost allow space for their child's discomfort. But before we even do that, 
We've got to understand our own ghosts, our own discomfort. If we do not address our ghosts, our children will only be reinviting our ghosts to come back and haunt us. As soon as we become parents, we become reactivated, you know, based on our own childhood. So if our parents didn't do a great job soothing us, guess what? We're going to struggle to soothe our own kids. We're going to be expecting our children to not cry or be quiet or silence them. But if we can learn to tolerate our own emotions when something comes up for us and we work on ourselves. So it's almost, we use the term within therapeutic circles, reparenting. If we can reparent ourselves, guess what? We've got the tools then to parent our children. And what I mean by that is that we sit with and tolerate those deep, uncomfortable emotions without trying to erase them or invalidate them. So, key thing to do first is acknowledge yours and acknowledge that theirs is different. Then you've got to start to um, help your child to express and normalize these emotions. So this could be done by taking examples from celebrities that may have gone through difficult times who they might look up to. And it is really about normalizing, using language to help them to express and describe how they feel. Are your children more inclined to express using words or are they more of a person that feels it in their body? Or are they somebody who likes to listen to music and kind of, you know, really connect to lyrics? Let them express how they feel. Um, it could be through football or physical movement, you know, children and adults alike, we, we express things in very different ways. It's not necessarily, oh, let's sit down, have a cup of tea, talk to me. It doesn't always work for everybody. So it is really about acknowledging that again, you might not be that person that they want to speak to as well. And that's something that a lot of parents, I think, struggle with. But actually, for a child to open up to a parent, it takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of rapport building. It's hard. It's not easy to, to open up to our parents because there may be things our parents will struggle to hear. So this is where, you know, we would invite other professionals or other people who are willing to listen. It could be an aunt. It could be an uncle. It could be, you know, uh, somebody at school. The most important thing is that you give them permission to speak, to express and normalize those conversations that, you know, what, it's OK to feel like this. Dr. Mystery, in every episode, we hear from a member of our GDSC family, and today's contribution comes from Dr. Abby Parnell, who is clinical psychologist at Portsmouth High School. I've been asked to share my thoughts in relation to how we at Portsmouth High School help the girls with the somewhat challenging task of developing their identity during adolescence and navigating the sometimes negative comments they may receive from their peers whilst on this journey. It is not uncommon for young people moving through adolescence to become extremely self-conscious about themselves and the way others see them. At Portsmouth High School, we work closely with all girls across the prep and the senior school to help them to understand themselves and in adolescence, the difficulties they may experience in relation to the formation of their identity. There are ways in which we help the girls manage this transition smoothly and encourage them to practice placing less importance on the opinions of their peers, not all of which will be positive. At Portsmouth High School, we encourage the girls to have friendships in lots of different places, not just within their classes, but across the whole school and also outside of school in sports, drama and other outside clubs. We also encourage the girls to set goals to work towards, providing an internal sense of achievement that is a strong factor in the development of their self-esteem. At Portsmouth High School, we also encourage the girls to look for the positives. 
We all have a natural negativity bias that causes us to focus more on negatives than positives. It is an evolutionary survival mechanism to help us be aware of threats. However, this can also contribute to our dwelling on negative comments, particularly in adolescence. The last point I wanted to add is that at Portsmouth High School, the girls are repeatedly reminded the only opinion that truly matters is your own. Caring too much about what other people think just takes away from the things that really matter, the values that the girls themselves hold personally and those important relationships in their lives with friends and family. Okay, so that's the context of the school setting. Can you give us any specific examples of kind of maybe helpful language that parents can deploy? I mean, you've spoken about self-knowledge, you've spoken about sitting with discomfort. So how do you start that really important conversation with your children without being the mum or dad that gets on their nerves just by opening your mouth? (laughs) I think with kids, I find that a non-direct approach is the best way. You could be doing an activity like washing the dishes, cooking, and you raise the conversation in a gentle manner, like using examples and gently broaching the subject. And you've got to really, as a parent, be mindful of when they shut down and when they want to be open. Because I think that as parents, we want to push, we want to know, we want to dig, we want to know what is the issue. But actually, by behaving in that manner, we're only then kind of closing them down even more. What I say to parents is, you know, your children, trust them. They will open up when they feel they are ready. And if it isn't you, don't take that to heart. That's just how children are. As a therapist, as a psychologist, I know that it will be a struggle to to kind of accept that my child might not want to speak to me. I might have all the skills in the world, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm the one. And that's okay. You know, it's really about making sure that it doesn't feel like it's pressurized in any way. So an example I give, especially for younger children is you get the colors out, you start drawing, you're playing Barbie dolls, or you're you're just doing something that isn't face-to-face like a therapy session, because there's nothing more intimidating than that. That's like the worst thing you can do. So what I would say is just do it in a gentle way. It could be that you just go for a coffee and a walk and you're walking with your kid and you're just noticing things and you just drop a gentle, oh, I'm just wondering about, follow your instinct as a parent. I think lots of parents listening will feel very reassured to hear that, Dear, you say that even as a psychologist with the tools to begin these conversations, you struggle. And it resonates with me as a teacher. I remember thinking that, you know, I was going to find it fairly easy to be a parent because I'd been a teacher for 20 years and I knew how to deal with pastoral problems. It didn't work out that way for me at all. So I think that was very helpful. Thank you. Um, Let me ask you about your podcast. It's called Brownology and in it you acknowledge the othering that ethnic minorities and girls too might experience. I'd be really interested to hear how that othering intersects with the anxiety of belonging and caring about others' opinions as well. Yeah, it's a huge, huge issue. I think that as um, people who kind of feel like they are in the minority face pretty much all the time. And I think that during the school years, it's ever so more prevalent because, you know, you know, just based on kind of how you are, what you what you do at home versus what it feels like at school, you're different. And that that's kind of how it is. You know, children from ethnic minority backgrounds will have more of that to deal with simply because they will be experiencing or having to adapt to two different cultures 
one of the strategies they use is code switching. So it could be that they, you know, um, act and behave a particular way at home and then they have to act and behave very differently at school. And that confuses um, many young people and even adults, you know, we're kind of like, oh, who are we? How are we meant to behave? But also it shows adaptation and resilience as well. So there are positives to this as well. For children, it is, again, acknowledging that this feeling exists. This idea of belonging or feeling like you don't belong exists and normalizing it again. As parents, you know, it's so important and vital to help your children understand that adaptation is a positive thing. Our ability to fit in or kind of mold ourselves to belong to particular groups or situations is hugely important. You know, we have different facets of ourselves that we bring out in particular environments. You know, there's a work Tina, there's a home Tina, there's a mom Tina, there's a uh, a best friend crazy Tina, you know, there's all different parts of Tina that come out to play at different points. And we have to acknowledge that, that, you know, one doesn't, one isn't out there permanently. And as children, we can do that too. There's nothing wrong with that. But we also need to allow time and opportunities for us to integrate as well. So they're not fragmented. So there's, you know, and, and, and I think this comes with age and experience that especially with our identities, we can start to bring those elements together. Now, those elements can only come together when we feel safe enough. And I think that this is where environment is hugely important. So for schools, for example, it's about acknowledging that there are different religions, different languages, different cultures. And it is about reminding these particular education settings that, you know, it's it's okay to talk about um, difference but and, and acknowledge difference, but to show that actually children and adults who are born in the in, in this country in particular, they, they kind of do a, a mashup, you know, an integration of things. You know, you can see it in our food, you can see it in our language, we, you can see it in our music. So it's around us all the time. And that expression is there, but it's about reminding us that, that actually beautiful things can occur when we bring things together. That again, sounds so reassuring. You know, the, I can imagine that some parents must find the sight of their children code switching, as you say, or adapting, you know, might feel that it's quite heartbreaking as a compromise of who they are. But actually, if it can be reframed and seen as a really positive thing, then that can be comforting, I imagine, as a parent. Yeah, absolutely. As parents, we need to acknowledge that this is what children do. Children are highly adaptive. They are born to survive situations. There's been tons of studies about how resilient children are. So what I would say to parents is your children are highly adaptable and they are born to survive. But it's also about acknowledging and giving them time and space to kind of give them the word we use is validation. So validating their emotions, acknowledging that they do exist and these frustrations or these feelings, they exist and they, they lie in the body and they lie in the body for a reason because they're helping us to grow. They're helping us to understand who we are. So it's partly also about not being scared of gaining greater self-knowledge. Yeah, it, I mean... All of this stuff, I think that it's partly experience, but also partly kind of what I've picked up from just understanding parents and children and just trying to understand, you know, kind of the development aspect of child development. It's vast and it's constantly evolving as a discipline. And I think that there's so much we can learn as parents from our parents, but also kind of from the science as well. I think that we spend so much time styling it out. 
you know, and, you know, I know, I know what I'm doing here. You know, I'm a parent. I must know what I'm doing. But actually, I think sometimes just admitting that you are, you know, you are a lifelong learner and you are constantly working out is really, really empowering, I think. I think that, you know, it's great that you're doing this podcast because it's tough being a parent. And especially in this day and age where you've got so much conflicting advice around what you should do and what you shouldn't do. But actually, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I have taken, really trying to trust our intuition, because I think as parents, we really do know deep down our children and we deep down know ourselves. It's just about giving ourselves that space to explore and conversations like this will hopefully help people to just start thinking about things in a kind of reframing it in slightly different way. Because I think the problem we have is we feel like that we need a professional to fix everything for us. And really, I really do believe that we have the skills and tools. We just need that little bit of village encouragement, you know, that village support and conversation like this will hopefully encourage that. And, you know, we're constantly growing, constantly learning. You know, I've, I believe I, I'm a forever student. I'm happy to be constantly reading books, having conversations, constantly just learning. And that's okay. We're not, we're not meant to be perfect. Dr. Tina Mystery, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST. To hear all the experts we have on this series and to make sure you don't miss one, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you could leave a review and a five-star rating, it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too. I'm Kathy Walker. Join me on the next episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST, when I'll be with broadcaster and writer Chloe Comby from iTunes number one rated podcast, You Don't Know Me. Chloe will be talking about the experiences, opinions and worldview of the youngest people in our life, Generation A. What you're starting to see with Gen A and Gen Z, which is really, really cool, is that they're using social media and their digital platforms for really good activism and not just promotion of the self. And their knowledge is incredible. I'll see you then.